ever played this game? Life, the game of life. It's actually, it's a pretty lame game. Uh, if I come over to your house and I catch your family playing life, I'm going to check out the refrigerator, maybe reshingle the garage, do something out back. If you're playing life with your family, it, it's a lame game, but in some ways it's, it's pretty cool. If you've ever played it back in yesteryear, you'll know that you can do a lot in the game of life. You can go to college, you can uh, grab a student loan, you can uh, get a speeding citation, you can uh, get married, you can, you can have a baby in the game of life simply by uh, landing on a space. So be careful. You can, you can get a home mortgage, you can uh, plan for your retirement, you can manage your portfolio, you can go through a midlife crisis in the game of life. And at the end, the, very, well, the instructions say that the end of the game, the desired result, is to imagine this, uh, to get to the top, to be the one that retires. Now, you've got a choice uh, in your retirement, but they're both grand, uh, grand options. But the, the winner of the game of life is the one who uh, gets to the top, to the one who ascends. And Jesus came to say, in John 10, 10, he said to us, uh, to a watching world, to a world crying out, for direction, wanting to know the trajectory to take, wanting to know um, the stirring within. And Jesus said, I've come that you might, would you say at church, I've come that you might have, but not life like life, life. It's not ascending. Uh, the goal, ultimate goal is at retirement. It's not the house on a hill and the boat on a lake. It's not to, to beat others down, to jockey for position. Um, it's, it's a life that finds greatness in descending. But make no mistake, when Jesus talks about life, he's talking about something that's full, a life that would, we would sing and we would dance and we would find fullness in him. Jesus later would teach after that. He would say, I've been teaching you all these things that you might have joy, that your joy might be full. Jesus, uh, I can say it, church, based on that scripture, Jesus wants you to be full of it. Ever been accused of that? I have often. Earlier this morning, I was accused of being full of it. What are you full of? Every life, you know, every life is known for something. You thought, you thought about that? Every, every life. That guy, man, he can, he can smash a golf ball. That guy, he got smashed last night. Uh, he's in church now. Uh, she can make a, a mean salsa dip. She can salsa at that studio in Fondren. Uh, that guy, man, see him over there? He can fix anything around the house. That guy over there, he can break anything around the house. We're all known for something. And when we encounter the life that Jesus invites us into, I wonder if we're known for the Jesus life. Or is our life kind of a game? Is it mindless, pointless? Is it just caught up in the currents like everybody around us? Is it some sort of trivial sport? about accumulation and about ascending, mindlessly ascending like others around us. Do, do, we, do we have the right scorecard? This morning, I want to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 27. And we're not going to put the passage up just yet because I want to say a couple things as you turn and before we put it up on the screen about life. David, this morning, is going to talk to us about a life that descends into greatness. That is... Seeking after what is right. Now, let me say as you're turning to Psalm 27, we're going to put it up on the screen in a moment. But did you come today with any, any burdens? Overwhelmed by anything? Do, do you feel busy and beaten down? Uh, I have this week in some ways. Man, I, I've, 
I've got some burdens. i just got a lot of things to do, do y'all? I've got a lot that's weighing on me. And it's just a lot of it's just sheer busyness. Anybody feel me? It's just, it's just busyness. It's just a lot to do. There's a, uh, I've come to despise this word called extracurricular. I mean, I struggle with the curricular, right? And then you throw in the extra. I'm not talking about academics now. I know school's starting back. I'm just talking about life, the extracurricular. I mean, I, I, the curricular bogs me down. Then you throw in the extra. I'm having lunch with somebody in a couple of days. I have a good feeling they're going to ask me to be on a board. And I'm just thinking that's going to be extra, extracurricular if I say yes. If I was B-O-R-E-D, I might be on your B-O-A-R-D. But I just a lot. Can I say yes to, to something like that? It's just the, the burdens that I have. But let me just say this. My life really is, is it's small. And in, in so many ways, I, I'm not as important as, as I think I am at times. And I don't know about you, but you, you don't really run a kingdom, do you? I don't. I mean, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm, I'm a friend, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I, I may or may not be a board member. I, I, I've got some things that pull me. I've got some responsibilities, but I'm not running a kingdom. You're not running a kingdom today. King David ran a kingdom. You're not sovereign over a state. No one is consulting you about national security matters. You're not able to establish the tax rate or to, to declare a national holiday. You're not able to execute anybody, are you? Uh, if you are, let me know. I, I know a couple of folks maybe. But you're not able to do any of those things because you don't really have a kingdom. I, I have my own little small kingdom. My kingdom that too often is a, it's a me kingdom. It's a it's a, a game of life kingdom. But I'm not, I'm not sovereign over a state. I'm not making decisions like David was making. And before we read Psalm 27, I want to tell you that David was, he had some things going on in his kingdom, some things that were touching him in a personal way. Sometimes we forget that leaders are people and that leaders struggle with loneliness. I don't know if you, any of you lead uh, an organization, but uh, loneliness is it's an issue for leaders. And David was struggling just, he was literally in a battle. The, uh, the, the nation of Israel, his kingdom, uh, was in a battle with the Philistines. Now today, if you turn on Fox or CNN, you will see what they probably, instead of breaking news, it should say gross oversimplification of a complex issue. And today we see Israel fighting with the Palestinians. And it seems to be the same thing over and over in so many ways. There's conflict. There's a, a gaining or a capturing or keeping of a territory. Then there's international pressure. There's a lengthy negotiations. And then there's some sort of historic peace agreement, which oftentimes just means a temporary truce. And we see that being played out in our world today. But David and the, and the nation of Israel... They, they didn't have the Palestinians they were fighting. It was the Philistines. And the Philistines were their nemesis. They were a nation on the border, and they would invade Israel and get beat up because Israel had a kick buttocks army back then, uh, as they do today. And Israel would just, you know, I mean, Israel was like, if you know baseball, Israel was like Nolan Ryan, and the Philistines were like Robin Ventura. You know, they, they would kind of invade, and Nolan Ryan would just grab Robin Ventura, pound him on the head a few times, and uh, he, they would go back, and they would run away, regroup, and come back for more. But nonetheless, it was a, it was a, a nemesis for David in, uh, in the running of his kingdom. War cost a lot. Battles are very hard. In addition to the Philistines, David had family issues. You bring any family issues uh, into the room today? 
I might make you feel good about yourself in comparison. Don't, don't want to minimize what you're going through. But David's son raped his daughter. And he, uh, in his rebellion, his post-rape rebellion, uh, he disposed his father for a good while uh, from the throne. So David, here's David with Philistine issues, with serious family issues. And what does he pray? Psalm 27. We're going to look at verse 4 to 6, and it'll be on the screen. David's prayer. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Let me, let me instruct you. Let me teach you, church. Here's David. And he prays what? In the midst of these great burdens, probably greater than any of ours in the room, he prays for God's presence. Now, I want to teach you this morning. I don't want you to miss this. This is important. You're going to walk with Christ and study and learn from his word. When there, there's really uh, two ways or two means of God's presence. God is present. Let me put it this way. God is present in, in two ways. First, the scripture teaches of his omnipresence, that God is everywhere. If you were to go to, to Pluto, which is no longer a planet, don't you feel bad for Pluto? God is there. God is, God is everywhere. We're not, we're not pantheism, pantheists now, but God is everywhere. The expression of God is everywhere. Psalm 139, where shall I go from his spirit? Where shall I free, flee from his presence? If I ascend, if I descend, he is there, he is there. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But God, the scripture teaches us that there is a special presence of the Lord. And when David writes, he's not here referring in Psalm 27 to the omnipresence of the Lord. It's a reference. It's a, it's a plea. It's a cry for the manifest, for the special presence of God. Now, what is that? Certainly different Churches teach that in a different way. Some of us get freaked out when we start talking about the presence of the Lord. Some of us are very comfortable. Some of us are wondering why we don't experience that more. I want to go on record as saying that uh, I believe there ought to be peace and order in worship, corporately and individually. But I want all, all that God has for me, all the manifestations of his presence and all the gifts, I want that in my life and I want it for you. I want it for our church. And the, the special presence of the Lord, is, is, it's just simply put this way. It's when God shows up. It, it's when you can feel them. It's David here seeing and savoring the sovereignty of God. And look, lots can happen when God shows up. When he makes his special presence known, uh, tears can flow. You can fall on your knees. You can, you can feel his presence. You can hear him speak to you. You sense him guiding you. And, and, and when it's happened to me in those moments in life, I feel so small. And God feels big. His sovereignty and his supremacy in, in that moment, on that day, it, it, it can reign in my life. And it's just so real. Don't you want to experience the presence of God? And David says, in the midst of being a statesman, of being a warrior and a poet and a, a leader of a nation, in the midst of being a family man, and both were in crisis on both fronts, he says one thing, 
I desire of the Lord. This thing I, I seek after. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. To dwell in the temple of the Lord all the days of my life. What a, what a prayer that David prays. To, to seek him in his temple. Now, what, what, let's make sure we understand what David is not saying. David, when he talks about being in the temple, he's not saying being in the temple all day like it's church 24-7. Uh, he's not saying when, when revival breaks out, when God's presence shows up, when God uh, comes to us, not just in his, in his omnipresence, but in his, his manifest special presence, it's not church 24-7. Uh, one of the fun things about starting a new church, we're, we're, we're three years old now, just about three years old, and, and it's, it's fun to kind of early put it into the life of the DNA of our church that we're the church gathered and we don't need to be here all the time. Uh, every Sunday would be great, okay? But, but not here all the time, but to scatter and to be the church, to live out Matthew 5, being salt and light. And David, in, in the Old Testament, in this ancient writing, is not saying hang out at church all the time. Experience God in church all the time. Uh, the, the temple cannot contain the glory of God. And David is saying, man, when he falls on us, something happens. This is what I desire. This, this thing I seek is his, his manifest, his special presence in my life. And David, if we can put the passage back up again, he, he says this, what? Here's what's going to happen. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Now, Prepositions are pretty important things. A preposition you learned in, in English is, is a word that precedes a noun or pronoun and that expresses a relationship with the word uh, or element that's next in that sentence or in that clause. That sounds kind of fancy, right? But prepositions are small little things. But the preposition here is very important. David is saying what? For he will hide me in. Here, There's your preposition, his shelter. In the day, not from. Not from. I've taught it before when Jesus talked about foolishness and wisdom from Matthew 7. He talks about building your, your life on the rock or building your life on the sand, building your life on the game of life by this world's standards. That there's wisdom and there's foolishness. And he taught this parable, some of you know, in Matthew chapter 7, the end of that chapter where a storm comes. And the storm hits the, 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 the house that's built on the sand and the storm hits the house that's built on the rock. And Jesus was clear. God has always been clear in his world, in his word. It's not about storm avoidance. It's not about not having trouble. You're going to have trouble, Jesus taught. You're going to be persecuted. People are even going to hate you. Uh, Paul told a young protege, Timothy, in the faith that, uh, you know, be, when you're active as a soldier, you're going to suffer persecution. We're going to have trouble when you are caught in various trials. James would teach the 12 tribes scattered abroad in the book of James. When you encounter all kinds of trials. It's not God will hide you from. It's God will hide you in the day of trouble. That preposition is really important. He goes on to say what? He hides us in the day of trouble. He will conceal me in the cover, underneath the cover of his tent. Now, why that word tent? What kind of tent is he talking about? It's not the Coleman pop-up tent that some of you snuggled in this summer. It's not one of those tents that has the packaging that says easy to assemble, which is a lie from the pit of hell, right? 
they've got a couple smiling, right? They're ready to go camping. They got their s'more stuff, and they're just, it's easy to assemble in like 60 minutes or less, and it's just a lie. It's not easy to assemble. Uh, David's not referring to, to the type of tent that you used this summer that you struggled to put together and fought with your family on vacation. Not that kind of tent. But this is a reference to what was clear in Scripture. Um, the Old Testament, the tent of meeting, where specifically God, not his omnipresence, but his manifest presence, met with Moses. And it was so thick and so rich in the tent of meeting. It was like, you can't not come in here. You are not ready for this. And David is saying that he'll not only hide me in the day of trouble, but he's going to invite me into the tent. He, he, he invites me into a special place. Hiding me in the trouble. Sheltering me. But inviting me into his presence. And then another thing that David says, a third thing in this passage about what God's going to do is he'll lift him up. He'll lift him up high upon a rock. Bono and you too wrote a song with this, this idea, this psalm and Psalm 40 in mind. That when David says God will, will lift me up out of the muck and out of the mire, he will, he will take my feet out of the clay and I'll be lifted up above it. And it doesn't mean that trouble's not going to come. It, it doesn't mean that God's going to get you out of it necessarily. It means that you'll find meaning in him. That you'll experience his presence. And man, for some of us that are hurting today, I'm telling you, it's a cruel God who won't, will not allow us to be afflicted. Who will not see us and allow us to experience some things. It's a tough idea, but Jesus enforced what the prophets taught. That he, God, will cause the rain to come on the just and the unjust. And it can shape us. In fact, when trials come, I know for me, and I'm going through one of them now, it squeezes some things out of me. It shows me what's really important. It shows me how selfish I am. How the, the bent, the proclivity, the inclination of my heart and my life is to wander from him, wander away from him to think I can do it. Myself. And David is saying, man, he will hide me. He'll hide me in the shelter of, of, of him in the day of trouble. Uh, he would later say in a psalm, in the, in the shelter of his wings. He'll hide me and he'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He'll, he'll lift me up on a rock. God is the rock. Deuteronomy 32.4, you're not the rock. Dwayne Johnson's not the rock. Hercules is not the rock. It, it, the, God is the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He's a God of truth and without iniquity. If things are topsy-turvy in your world, God is saying when it shifts, when it's sand, when things are written in flux, to look to him. And God desires to lift us up. To lift us what? To lift us up high. To lift us up high. Last night I was hanging out with Brenton, Angie Shorter. Brent was talking about their trip down to Florida this past week, and a, a, a pilot friend flew them down at only 8,000 feet above uh, the surface. It, you, they got to see when, when, when you get lifted up, whether you're on an airplane or, or on a mountain or uh, a friend just got back from Chicago on a, in a high-rise, you, you know uh, that when you're lifted up, you get a different perspective, don't you? 
And don't miss that. This passage doesn't say God's going to lift you up and whoop, there goes your problem like a popsicle in the August sun. Gone, zapped you, problem's done. He said, I lift you up high above that. And then when he says this about God hiding us and God concealing us and the tent, inviting us into his presence and lifting us up on something himself that is solid, elevating our lives so that we can have the right perspective. Notice what he says. And now my head, this is verse 6 if you're looking down at your Bibles, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. What's the posture of somebody that's hurting? Heads down. Talk to somebody this week. Downcast. Their, their spirit depressed, just drooping like the ears of a basset hound. Just picture a basset hound, right? Just close your eyes and picture a basset hound. Those, those weepy eyes and those floppy ears and that head just, just down. David is saying that's when, you, when, when it's hard, when you feel depressed and dejected, that's the, that's the spirit. You're, you're, you're not swollen up. You're sunken in. You're, you're not puffed up. There, there, there's not pride. There's, there's pain. And David is saying all that God is doing He's doing something in me, and he's lifting up my head. In Psalm 25, I believe it is, David prays in, in a song. He says, you're the glory, God. You are the glory, and you are the lifter of my head. I believe we can fake it. I believe church folks can fake it as well as anybody. Religious people can. That's why Jesus attacked hypocrites, had harsh words. For religious people that pose. But yet I think as the day plays out, as a trial unfolds in your life and mine, I think our body tells our story. You believe that? And David is saying, man, my, I've been a basset hound. I've, I've been sunken in. My head has been dejected. But God, he's the glory. He's the lifter of my head. What about that family situation, David? That's a doozy. That's a doozy. God's a lifter of my head. What about your nemesis? What about that nation on the board? They keep coming back. you got a stud army, but they keep coming back, and it's costing you. Eventually, they're going to get you. What about the Philistines? God is he's my glory. He's the lifter of my head. And as we round toward home, I want, I want to give you a couple of things that I think that can really attract the manifest special presence of God and then a couple things that can repel the special presence of God in your life. And, and, and let me say this. Uh, history tells us that David had a friend, Saul. And David would play the harp. Do you know this? David would play the harp. Saul would be um, uh, just harassed by depressions and, and, and by demons. And David would play this, this harp. And Saul would just be, he'd be lifted up. The dejection would be gone. His own head would be lifted up. And some of you guys are thinking, right on the heels of football season, played a harp. David played a harp. I mean, how manly is that, right? I've got a friend who lives out in Portland. Uh, he informed me that, uh, this past week that Portland was named the least manliest city in America. How about that? I said, dude, that's got to hurt. I said, dude, you're a part of that. You're a part of that, bro. And he's got a beard. They got a lot of beard wearers out there. 
but they're just timid kind of guys, right? I mean, what is a man? Let me ask you, what is a man? Does a man play a harp? Is David a man? There's a, a lot of different views on manhood. Some of us, we think it's 007. We think it's being smooth and silky and, and, and kind of a you know James Bond kind of womanizing kind of man. For others, a, a man is a, a NASCAR kind of man. I drink a six-pack every night and work on my Chevy kind of man, right? And more in our day, it seems like a, a man maybe is being defined or, or depicted as a 24-hour uh, fitness kind of man, right? He's, he's doing spinning classes and yoga and Pilates, and he's, he's working on his core and running a, a half marathon and putting that 13.1 sticker on his hybrid car, right? Kind of a, a, a Teletubby with a six-pack, right? I mean, what is, what is the view of a man? And David, David played a harp. I mean, he, he played a harp. And men, let me remind you, he killed lions and bears and slew a giant named Goliath. So lay off of him about his heart for a moment, okay? But we see in the midst of David's masculinity. Listen, guys, some of you need to hear it. All right, I'm deviating a little. Pastor's deviating a little bit, okay? But you need to hear it. Man, we see, we see the toughness of this guy. All warrior. But we see the tenderness in this guy. We see a man who is a poet. And he knows, I mean, we've got some artists here in the room. We, we have Bellhaven right nearby. We've got some of our college students coming back in the next couple of weeks. We have a, a lot of artists who, who feel deeply, well, that was David. And David had the tenderness with his friend. And now, let me say this, though. When it comes to the presence of the Lord, I want to I handle this right. I want you to understand Scripture. Sometimes there are things that are descriptive in the Bible, and there are things that are prescriptive. When something's prescriptive, we can take it and say, I can directly apply that to my life. It happened here, and that's the way God works, and he's going to do it. This is not uh, prescriptive. It's descriptive. And here's what I'm saying to you. Uh, there's no lock. There's no key. There's no combination. To, to, to have God's special presence in your life. And you know, some people fake it. You know that? Some people just want to be spiritual. So they talk about the manifest presence of God in their life all the time. But there's just no, there's no combination. You can't go twice to the right and once to the left and go past zero and hit a seven and then turn another seven and then another seven and seven, 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 and there's the presence of God. There's no key. There's no combination. There's no harp you can play where God will show up. But I believe if a couple of things are present in our lives, I, I believe we, we, we get the soil of our life right to experience God. And the first one is personal holiness. Personal holiness. We need to talk about it, church. We're not talking about going pharisaical. We're not talking about legalistic. We're talking about life matters. God tells us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. The decisions I make matter. Would you agree with that? Let me, let me ask you, church. Do you think there's just some decisions that if I made them, you would be like, who's that guy? I don't want him to be my pastor. Is that pretty fair? I mean, there's some things, some decisions in my life. And let me say this, I'm no more special than you. And to be a pastor is to very regularly get a front row seat to train wrecks in people's lives. Foolish, bad choices. And some of us are flaunting things. What a disparity between uh, how we want to live in Jesus and what we're flaunting on social media and how we're living. I got a text from somebody this week just flaunting something on vacation. I thought, man, I'm their pastor, and they're sending this to me, and it's pornographic. 
And I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I just think they're clueless. I don't think they get it. And I want to tell you, church, holiness matters and decisions matter. And there's a way to go that doesn't honor the Lord. And it'll take you down a path that you don't want to go. There are the bright lights of this world. And David knew that. Some of you know the story of David. I mean, he was a red-blooded male. And he went down a path. And in Psalm 51, he said familiar words to some of us. He talked about the brokenness of his spirit. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And this passage uh, says to create in me a clean spirit. Don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We might put that on the new screen. And that was clockwork, wasn't it? Cast me not away from your presence. What, look at that word, from your presence. David sees a relation between the decisions he's making the way he's living his life, and the way he experiences Christ. Acts chapter 3. I met with a pastor a couple of weeks ago. Critics, hard times, bearing a weight that God doesn't intend him to bear. And we talked about this very passage. I prayed it over him because I have been there and I've had it prayed over me. And I prayed that he would experience God's presence. He would experience this. Repent. That word means we teach this, don't we? I want you to know it. It means to change your mind and to change direction. Repent, therefore, and turn again. Look at that word. Again. Have you noticed? Let me say this. Personal holiness requires ongoing confession and repentance. If you're going to walk in holiness, you are going to blow it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to need to confess it and you're going to need to repent. Confess and repent. Can I tell you, it's a regular part of my life. Confess, repent, wash and repeat. That's your pastor. And it's the only path. I've looked for shortcuts. I've looked for ways around it, but there is no other way. I, I'm, I'm fallen and I've got it within me and I've got to Confess when God brings it to my attention and repent to have a change of life. And then what comes? His presence, times of refreshing. Personal holiness matters. And so does passionate worship. Don't miss the passage. End of verse 6, David of Psalm 27, our text today. He talks about singing, about a melody that, that's in his heart. Now, church, here's what I want to say. Some of us, we're not thinking, we're not, we're not thinking good thoughts when it comes to singing and worship in our day. You know, there's the church wars, right? Where do you stand on the church wars? What, what type of a style do you like? What, what songs do you want to be sung? And we're, Christians are using social media to go after each other. And I'm just stunned by how so much of it's either unbiblical or sub-biblical. God doesn't care about some of the things that we think he cares about. And let me say this, instruction really matters. Some of us, though, we treat singing as a, an, an add-on to our worship experience. And it's why it kills me at the end of many services, some folks will just kind of cut out because it's, it's just a song or two, right? It's just, a, it's just a song or two. But let me say this, you guys know um, I, I believe in preaching. I believe it, it, it's of God, and I believe we need instruction. But there will be a day in glory when instruction will end. Okay? We're not going to be in heaven one day and God's not going to look at me and say, All right, Green, give him some instruction. Give him a sermon. 
And then I stand up and say, well, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to Timothy to the church at Ephesus. And here's what it says, and let me explain to you what it means. That's not going to happen. Aren't you glad? There'll be, a, there'll be a time, pretty cool, this is really good for some of you. There'll be a time when you won't need any instruction anymore. But there will always be singing. And the Bible says this remarkable phrase. Topher, this will preach one of it. God inhabits the praise of his people. And singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, Colossians 3 and throughout Scripture, ought to be a regular pattern of us being together. I met this week with an African-American friend, Christian leader in our community, to talk about Jackson. And we talked about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail in the church in the 60s in the South. And this was a body of believers who came together despite a lot of discrimination and persecution and very hard scrabble times. And they would come and they would sing and church would go long. And they would keep on singing. And what's astonishing to me is I've talked to this friend, this new friend in my life. They would, they would walk past signs that said colored people and white people. And they would go into disadvantage, go back to disadvantaged areas. Nothing had changed. But man, they were singing and making melody. There is a power in song. And when we're passionate in worship, when we, when we pursue personal holiness and passionate worship, I think we increase the likelihood that we will experience God's presence, his manifest special presence in our lives. Now, there's a couple things as we close that can, uh, they don't attract God's presence, they repel his presence. And two things quickly, I'm going to say it fast. One is pride. It's the pride. It's playing out today with one of the most famous pastors in America. Of a, of a church planting network that uh, he started uh, getting in a hurry and he started taking shortcuts. He started plagiarizing and pride and arrogance has become a part of his life and all these pastors that worked around him have left him. And, and now they've, they've taken to the airways, some of them with angry blogs, but the people that love him have come around him and said, hey, you need to confess, you need to repent. And he's uh, evidently been unwilling to do so and pride is bringing down another Christian leader. There's, there's a word, a definition I want to put. Well, first of all, let's, let's look at this passage from Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 32, I believe it is. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools uh, destroy them. We're missing a passage, aren't we? Um, there we go. Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 138, my bad. Psalm 138 and verse 6. For the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now I know there's some good-looking 20-something-year-olds out there going, Hey, God doesn't like the haughty? I mean, i got to apologize for coming up here and being good-looking. God is against the haughty. The Bible says the haughty he knows from afar. Now, I don't know about, you know I'm kidding. I don't know about the haughty. I don't know about shorty. I just know about the haughty, right? And the scripture's saying the haughty, the haughty he knows from afar. Pride can do that. Look at this definition of humus. Not hummus. Some of you are going to Kiefer's or Aladdin or Petra or whatever that place is. Humus. A noun. It's the dark organic. Trust me, you don't want to dip your bread in humus. The dark organic material in soils produced by the decomposition. It only gets worse. The decomposition of vegetable and what we've chosen to say animal matter. And, and it's essential to the fertility of earth. 
Humility and humus are from the same root word of the earth. And for us to experience God's presence, there has to be a dying. Walter and John even symbolized it. There's a dying to ourself. There's being raised and walked up. We accept uh, Christ and, and we say that there must be less of me and more of him and pride and that lack of humility will repel God's presence. And lastly, just a complacency. Proverbs, here, here, now it's time for Proverbs. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Jesus taught a parable in Matthew 25. He said the kingdom of heaven will be, future orientation, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who go at the night to wait on the bridegroom. And five, he taught, are foolish and five are wise. And uh, the five that are foolish, all they do is bring their lamp. They don't bring any oil. No extra oil. And the five that are wise, they, they bring their lamps and they bring a flask full of extra oil. And they wait. And in this parable, this figure of speech, Jesus teaches that they wait and they grow drowsy. Because they, they had to tarry. They had to wait. They grow drowsy and they fall asleep. But in the middle of the night, the cry is heard out from the bridegroom. Come and enter into the marriage, to the marriage feast. And when they hear the voice, the five foolish, unprepared, complacent virgins scramble to get oil. And they ask, and the, the, the five wise say, there's not enough. Jesus wasn't teaching about compassion in this parable. He goes, there's not enough. Not enough for us and you. You'll have to go buy some from the dealer. And as they go to, to buy from the dealer, the door is shut. Jesus is wanting to teach us that complacency will destroy us. And it may be hard to hear this morning. The part of experiencing God's presence, I'm telling you, there's no combination, there's no key, there's no harp that can be played. But complacency will destroy you. And when you say, I don't care, when you say, I'm not going to be prepared, when there's no anticipation or preparation, uh, when there's no willingness to wait, then we're left empty-handed and the door is shut. And I pray that God stirs up something in our midst here in Fondren. And you guys know God's desire is not for the name of Fondren Church to be great. In fact, when we do get to heaven, not only will I or no one be giving instruction, we won't even be worried about Fondren Church. All right? Fondren Church doesn't matter. Jesus does. But I pray that there's just something that God does in this place, that we experience his presence and that we will uh, we'll buck the trend. Some of us will get here early and we'll sit down front and we'll, we'll anticipate, we'll prepare ourselves for worship. It just won't be a little addendum in our lives. The pursuit of personal holiness, passionate singing and worship, it attracts his presence. And our pride and our complacency repels the very God that we're created to know.